From the studios of WHUPLP in Hillsborough, North Carolina, this is Dirty White Belt Radio. Innovative, often duplicated When enough people get on the trend I elevate it, make it way harder For them to follow what I take It hard to swallow like a lozenger Lodged in your trachea Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up So just take your stuff Rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk, you painted skunks You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space So the wait is up Fight, Welcome back to Hillsborough, North Carolina, the center of the known world, for another episode of Dirty White Belt Radio. Thanks for tuning in. We have a packed show this week, which is true a lot lately, and so we're going to get right to it. A lot of news happening from U.S. Grappling uh, in Richmond yesterday to the next U.S. Grappling Tournament July 29th to United Grappling putting on a great card to a couple of interviews with folks who came through. Uh, we're really excited to bring you today's show. But first, got to tell you how to get a hold of us. If you want to email the show, you can email the show at cagesidewhup at gmail.com. Get at us on Twitter at DWB Radio and Instagram. We are on Instagram at Dirty White Belt, and you'll see some pictures of the show coming up. Uh, I'm joined by my favorite white belt. Betsy O'Donovan. Who, good morning. Good morning. And w- Betsy will join me for an etiquette segment later. I want to sort of preview the show for folks. Uh, we're going to talk about Dirty White Belt's uh, Patreon campaign quickly. Then we're going to talk about uh, U.S. Grappling Richmond, some results from there, some other news from around the area. Betsy is going to join me for an etiquette segment we like to call Ask a Random Purple Belt, the random purple belt being me. And then we're going to get into a couple of our featured interviews. Our interviews are with Moises Antonio Lopez, the Honey Badger, who is a brown belt under Robert Drysdale, a Masters World Champion, Pan Champion, who came to Cody's, Cody Malte's school, Elevate MMA, to teach a footlock seminar this week. He sat down with us for a really entertaining and enlightening 15 or 20 minute conversation about training, about teaching, about balancing uh, your life with jiu-jitsu. He works a graveyard shift job, uh, has a family, including a three-year-old, and manages to compete at an extremely high level. So I think you'll be interested in that conversation. Our featured interview is with Kristen DeBrucker. I traveled all the way up to D.C. to interview Kristen, who I'd wanted to have on the show for a while. Uh, she's a multifaceted martial artist and a brown belt under Pedro Sauer, who recently came to North Carolina to teach a seminar at Mark Kukro's school uh, in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. But Kristen's martial arts career doesn't just extend to Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. It, it, she teaches Muay Thai, uh, fought in the early days of, M- of women's MMA, which you'll hear some great stories about, teaches Panchak Silat and Kali and trains all these different martial arts forms. And it has a really interesting take on training and teaching and uh, and the world of martial arts. She also produces a very entertaining series of YouTube videos called Throat Punch Thursdays. Uh, we're all going to enjoy those until Jason Culberth sues her for copyright infringement, which is an inevitability. So let's get right to it. We I want to start in by talking about U.S. Grappling Richmond. I've been promoting that for a while because Richmond is sort of the meeting point between the D.C. scene and the North Carolina scene. And the event did not disappoint. We have no, uh, th- there's no way that we can break down the entirety of the event for you. But although we have posted the podium photos to our Facebook page, which is Cage Side Radio, and we have, and we'll post those to the blog at dirtywhitebelt.com slash blog as well. We, I want to lift up a few performances uh, that 
that I thought were worth highlighting. And uh, so, so join me for that. The first person I want to shout out is somebody that's been working really hard, not just at jiu-jitsu, but improving strength and conditioning. And, you know, James Boomer Hogaboom is somebody who's been a guest on the show, and he's somebody that everybody in the community knows. Boomer does a ton for the scene, from uh, running the, the uh, premier pro, pro shop on the East Coast, Cage Side Fight Company, to putting on Toro BJJ's Toro Cup cards, which have raised over $10,000 for charity, to supporting just uh, countless local fighters and generally being a positive force in the scene. Everybody knows him for that. And there's a trade-off between your that type of life and your training type of life. But over the last year, Boomer has really been training his butt off, including doing a lot of CrossFit um, to supplement his strength and conditioning. And Boomer ended up getting third in the absolute division at Purple Belt this weekend, which was a pretty stacked division. I saw some of the cats in that in that division, including Chris Luter, and they were super tough. So congratulations to Boomer for that. It's always really nice to see hard work pay off. I also know his friend of the show, Ryan LaFree, winning his no-gi advanced weight class, which is terrific. Um, you know, Ryan is another guy that trains really hard, has been focused on no-gi lately. I know he loves the leg locks, and so it was great to see Ryan LaFree have some success. Uh, Isaac Renner at the top of the podium as well in Nogi, um, a brown belt at uh, at Nakapon's uh, Beta Academy and a guy that a lot of people know, one of the most uh, positive members of the local scene, also at the top of the podium. So it was fun to see Isaac have success. And the last thing I want to talk about is I noticed that Greg Walker, who's one of my favorite local guys to, mo- to watch, competed against uh, David Porter, another one of my favorite local guys to watch. We've had both of those guys on the show. And Greg ended up winning on points, uh, which, you know, it, the, my only regret about that match is that I wasn't there to watch it in its entirety, which uh, is something that, that I would have loved to see. Two guys who are both extremely high-level practitioners with a really interesting interface of styles. Greg, terrific top control wrestling. He's good everywhere, but, you know, he wants to take you down past your guard. Dave, somebody who is going to hunt for submissions the whole time and so uh, just that that you know unexpected but tremendous performance by Greg Walker and uh, as for Dave Porter he went five and two on the day and unex- unsurprisingly all five of his wins were by submission so so another terrific U.S. grappling event this past weekend congratulations to to the U.S. grappling crew for putting that on if you want to compete at U.S. grappling your next opportunity to do so is actually a submission only tournament and there was some conversation on Facebook about this recently so I wanted to, to, to lift this up as, as you know I'm somebody that really believes in the value of competition and I think all rule sets are something that are entertaining and all and I think you get something different out of competing in all different rule sets because you put yourself in very different high pressure situations super different situation to try to score two points in the last 30 seconds of a match to win that you're behind by one point than it is to know that the only way you can win by submitting your opponent and if you want to compete at US grappling uh, submission only Raleigh July 29th the only way that you can win is by making your opponent tap and so I think you get good things out of each uh, of each rule set, the points rule set and the sub-only rule set. The points rule set is terrific for a sense of urgency within a confined time space and a limited rule set. And the sub-only uh, is valuable for a number of different reasons. You know, and for one thing, it's the only pure result you can get. There are no time limits, uh, which means you don't have a, well, I have 10 minutes to submit this guy, uh, and five minutes after that we go to points. It's... Um, it's you walk on the mat with somebody else, one of you is going to tap eventually. And that's just a totally different mindset, uh, generally speaking. So U.S. Grappling, uh, Richmond just happened. Raleigh is July 29th. Be sure to get out and support that. U.S. Grappling is our favorite tournament organization for a lot of reasons. Run by grapplers for grapplers, U.S. Grappling consistently provides the best tournament experience for competitors. Whether it's a points tournament or submission only, and U.S. Grappling runs true no-time-limit submission-only events, it's the best place to compete and to watch your friends compete. Check out upcoming events and register online at usgrappling.com.
one other note uh, in terms of grappling competitions. I noticed that United Grappling, uh, who is a, a Facebook a promotion, um, ended up having streaming their card live on Facebook. And I was going to watch it anyway because a lot of really high-level competitors were on there, including Tex Johnson, including Paulo Miao. And there was an injury at the last minute. And a couple of weeks ago, we had Nikki Ryan on the show, and Nikki Ryan hopped in uh, into this eight-person bracket, ended up fighting Paulo Miao. Um, and, you know, as, as, as you would expect, Paulo Miao, you know, great black belt, um, ended up beating Nikki Ryan on points. But, but the point I want to make here is not even necessarily about that match itself, but one of the cool things about doing jiu-jitsu now is that there's all this high-quality jiu-jitsu available for free streaming online, which is something that I, I think we will all like to see more of. And as we try and grow the scene, it's something that I think is really important that we not just, uh, you know, if we're interested in creating an economy where jiu-jitsu athletes can make a living off of this, which I, I think we are, and we'll talk about that more on future shows, then get out and support these these streams, especially the ones that are free, and, you know, just watch them. You know, the best way that you can support jiu-jitsu is by participating in jiu-jitsu and watching more jiu-jitsu. So speaking of support... A couple different ways that you can support. Uh, I want to throw some support behind uh, a friend's project, and I want to tell you about a way you can support the show. If you enjoy the theme music of this show at the beginning of the show and at the end, uh, that's by Tune and the Real Law, who are local Durham hip hop artists. And, you know, I'm a big believer in the arts generally, martial and otherwise. And those guys have a Kickstarter uh, for the Beats and Bars Festival. It's a local Durham hip hop festival. If you're interested in hip hop music or just promoting, you know, art culture generally, there's a Kickstarter. There's some incredible rewards we'll post a link to that on the facebook those guys have been a lot to support the show by providing us theme music and so we want to we want to support them as well um lastly i do want to mention that uh, once again that this is the first month of the dirty white belt patreon campaign so if you go to patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dirty white belt you can contribute to the show and get some great rewards i have some uh, I, we've already dropped some rewards simply because i want to really thank the people that have shown their support early in the game so thanks everybody um but uh but also it officially kicks off on july 1st and that's when the really fun stuff is going to start and so some of these rewards are going to include early looks at photos early looks at blog posts uh, i'm designing the new toro bjj gi which comes out in august and you'll be the first ones to get to see what it looks like which i'm really really stoked about and we'll talk about that when we do the gi design show eventually so if you're interested in supporting the show for as little as a dollar a month you can go to patreon.com slash dirty white belt and so that's the news we have a couple of other great uh, uh, we're excited to bring you a couple of great interviews today but uh, before we do that we're gonna get to a segment that I like to call ask a random purple belt and we'll get to that right on the other side of this break I want to talk to you guys about Cageside Fight Company for a second. I've been buying from Cageside for more than six years, and about 99% of the gear that I use is from Cageside. That's not because other companies don't make good stuff. They do. It's just that Cageside offers the highest quality products at the best value and, no joke, the best customer service I've ever experienced in my life. So whether you're looking for shin pads, whether you're looking for Thai gear, whether you're looking for Brazilian jiu-jitsu geese or Valetudo shorts, whether you're looking for the coolest t-shirts around, check out Cageside.com or come into their fight shop at one. 24 Lotta Road, right in Durham, North Carolina. You won't be sorry. Another thing I want to mention about Cageside is they do more to support local fighters and local Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitors than just about anybody else. And so we've got to support the people that support us. Check out Cageside Fight Company, 124 Lotta Road in Durham, North Carolina, or online at cageside.com. I'm joined in studio by my favorite white belt, Betsy O'Donovan. Betsy, how are you doing this morning? I am 
cheerful and I have coffee. How are you this morning? I'm terrific. We are also joined by Fletcher the Bloodhound, who is our recent addition to the Shaw Donovan household. He's 18 months old and filled with drool and charm. Do you think that's a fair assessment? There's a little bit of mischief mixed in there, too. Yeah, for sure. More drool than charm. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. There's a lot of charm in there, in there with that drool. But nobody's here to hear us talk about our Bloodhound. I, I want to hear what you want to hear in terms of etiquette. Often Betsy will join me on the show for an etiquette segment, Ask a Random Purple Belt. I am a random purple belt, and Betsy has lots of questions. I do. Um, Today's is actually based on a bunch of things I've been hearing recently, actually since I started jujitsu, that sort of make my eyebrows quirk up. And I'm going to just give you a couple of sentences that I've heard. Nice work. Good job. Oh, you got me. These are all things I've heard white belts say to upper belts after a roll, which um, I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, One, it's sort of my reaction has to hearing people say that is, oh, gosh, I don't want to ever say that because they these are people who should be able to tap white belts. Right. Um, And two, I, I thought it might be useful to talk about what is a good way to end a role with an upper belt? What's the most productive way? What's the best way for your jujitsu to continue your learning and not just end that interaction? So mm-hmm. my question. Yeah. So it seems like there are two aspects there. Like what's the best way to approach a role with an upper belt in order to learn the most from it? And what's the best way to be polite and end the role in a, in a gracious fashion? Uh, and so let's get at both of those. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit the, the, the first one first, just because I wrote a blog post about this this month. Th- this month. It's uh, five ways that you can approach rolling in jujitsu. And that's available at dirtywhitebelt.com slash blog. Uh, rolling is the lab. This isn't a competition. U.S. grappling is a competition. That's where we go to get the medals. There are no medals on display at your local gym. And so you should approach it as a learning perspective uh, where, you know, if, you, if you're going to lose, lose slower. If you have a chance to, quote, win, although nobody really wins a role, you know, go after the things that you want to go after, but do so in a technical and controlled fashion. Nobody has ever gotten angry uh, rolling with a calm guy, but plenty of people have gotten angry if they get smacked in the face when someone who is very fast and explosive but doesn't know where they're going smacks you in the face or hits you in, in a sensitive area. And, and I think a lot of those are common sense, and so I don't want to spend too much time on them because the other part of your question is more interesting. So let's acknowledge that different people have different preferences and that we should always be attentive to sort of the culture of our gym and the, the person that you're rolling with. Some people get more sensitive than others. Some people are very much sticklers for protocol and decorum. Other people less so. I feel like I'm, I'm more on the less so side of the scale in that as long as I feel like the person is trying to be positive to be trying to, 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 be, to be positive and respectful are the two, two sort of keys, then everything is cool. Uh, that being said, there's certainly an optimal way to approach it. One thing that I think a lot of folks, particularly who enter jujitsu through the other martial arts, don't always get is that a, you know, a, a, a purple belt should be able to tap you. And a purple belt should be able to put you in positions which are which are uncomfortable. Although, of course, if that person is 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 rolling well and being polite, they should also you know. Although it should be clear who is in control of the round, they shouldn't be being a jerk about it either. So, the, the sort of the the sort of thing that you hint at in your question is like a lot of times you'll hear new folks say things like, "Oh, you got me," uh, you know, or express sort of frustration or surprise. That uh, that something happened. This is often true, especially if it's a guy rolling with a woman or a guy rolling with a much smaller guy. And what you know, Valerie Worthington has a terrific take on this, which is, 
you know, and, and usually people don't get frustrated and upset, but Valerie Worthington wrote a great article about how she explains to them, look, you know, it's not about you and me, it's about the art. And you're here to learn this art because you feel like it's valuable. Well, why do you feel like it's valuable? You feel like it's valuable because this is the art that allows smaller, weaker people to tap bigger, stronger people. This is the art that allows um, women to, to beat men uh, on, on a level playing field. And, you know, if, if you don't think that's true, then why are you here? <laughs> and so, so that's sort of the attitude that you approach with. The safest thing to do uh, in terms of politeness is simply to say, hey, thank you. That was awesome. I also find, you know, thank you. Because for me, that's what I always say when I roll with a black belt, because that's me sort of acknowledging I'm getting more out of this than they are. I am learning more from them than they are learning from me. Now, a good in a good role, we're both learning from each other, right? They're working on their stuff. I'm working on my stuff. There's some interplay there. But for me, like like if I roll with, with uh, you know, Seth Champ or Jay Quitfield or, you know, Jason Colbreth, people that like have dozens of students, you know, that's time for, that they're devoting to me to invest in my improvement. Uh, and, and so I think that that sort of acknowledgement is useful. I do know that like one thing that I, w- I want to mention is like I've heard guys get upset before when people are like, oh, you're so good because it's like, well, you know, I'm a black belt, of course. And it's like, I kind of feel like we can be a little more laid back about that too. And that like, as long as the person's intent is politeness and respect, then it's no big deal. The other thing I wanted to ask you about that is, um, you know, there's uh, some people at our gym are super, super generous with advice after roles. So, uh, but it's a little weird to ask for it because you're asking for someone's teaching time basically for free when they've just spent seven minutes or more rolling with you. Mm -hmm. Um, But for example, like, Shayla, too. <laughs> Sorry about the Fletcher noise in the background. If you can hear something that sounds like uh, like mud flaps, that's the dog shaking his face. It's kind of awesome, and I do not apologize. Um, Continue. But so Shayla, too, for example, uh, you know, is somebody I know pretty well. She's a purple belt. She's got tremendous skills that I want to learn. Um, and after a roll, I feel comfortable saying to Shayla, like, "Hey, thanks." And also, did you notice anything I need to work on? But that also feels a little dicey asking somebody I don't know. And what I wanted to get a beat on is, is that a generally appropriate question? Is that really rude? <laughs> I think it's generally appropriate. And I think it's, I think it's, I think it's frankly terrific because it's deferential and it sort of acknowledges that, Hey, you're better than me. If you see anything that I need to work on, please let me know. You're right to be attentive to the other person's time. The, the rule of thumb that I use in my mind is, Am I taking away their rolling time? Because always when the clock rolls off, there's a little break before we do our next round, right? And so I always, like I was up at the Pager Sauer headquarters and I rolled with a bunch of awesome black belts. I rolled with Mike Horahan for the first time and you know his guard is tremendous. And so basically we stop I, and I said to him, hey, that was great, thank you so much. You know, and, and also said, hey, if there's anything I'm doing that's wrong or anything I can do better, love it if you'd let me know. And, and he said, yeah, you know, sure. And we, he didn't, and, but, and so that I think is appropriate. And that's sort of the acknowledgement that, hey, if you have tips for me, I would be open to hear them. I don't consider that an obligation for you and it doesn't have to be right now, you know? Mm-hmm. And that way, if they want to say, oh yeah, you placed your hand this one place that is dangerous. Let me show you that quickly. They can, but if they, if they don't feel like it, they don't have to. And also, these are quick things that can happen that don't take away their ability to participate in the next round. And that is sort of, for me, the line of demarcation. I love showing people stuff. I love helping new people. I love introducing people to jujitsu and sort of like guiding them to the extent that I am able. And if they want to know something that they saw me do, I love showing them that stuff. 
but if it takes away my ability to, to, to participate in the next round, then that is sort of where the trouble gets in. And uh, that, I think, is the, the hard and fast rule. All right, cool. Thanks so much. Thanks for participating. If you have some questions that you would like Betsy to ask me, feel free to email us at cagesidewhoop at gmail.com, get at us on Twitter and Instagram, or you can post the questions on our Facebook page, which is Cageside Radio. Our featured interview today is brought to you by Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Company. Toro BJJ produces the highest quality gis, rash guards, and grappling supplies for every Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. You can check them out online at torobjj.com. Our thanks to Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for making our featured interview possible. So let's get to it. So our first interview of the day is with the honey badger, Moises Antonio Lopez. And if you wonder how he got that nickname, don't worry. It's the first question I ask him. So uh, he came to uh, Elevate MMA this week during the middle of the week to teach a seminar on the straight ankle lock. And it was extremely well received and well attended. People were enthusiastic about it. And talking to Antonio for 20 minutes, I I absolutely could see why. Super nice guy, uh, very thoughtful and very, I think, candid about his journey in jiu-jitsu, about where he's come from, where he's been, uh, and where he's going in the future. And I think for uh, particularly for those of us that are um, competing in the master's division and that have jobs and lives and wives and girlfriends or boyfriends and, you know, that are looking to balance our, our main, you know, the other aspects of our life with this art that we love, I think that there's a terrific perspective in here from here from him as well. You'll also hear him talk about uh, starting jiu-jitsu programs on military bases as a way to give back, which I think is a terrific perspective as well. So uh, without further ado, I hope you in- enjoy this interview with Moises Antonio Lopez, the Honey Badger. Okay, hey uh, guys, uh, Moises Antonio Lopez, uh, aka the Honey Badger. Um, so I used to train with Cody over in Las Vegas under Robert Drysdale. Um, where he tried to take my head off and I tried to take his feet off, you know. Um, and uh, I came out here to, well, I came to Virginia for a little vacation to see my family. Uh, made a post to see who wanted to get some seminars and stuff. And Cody contacted me and, you know, didn't think about it twice. Came out here to do a seminar with him, roll with some of his guys, you know. Uh, Cody's always been good to me, good friend, good training partner. So uh, it's, you know, it was a pleasure and an honor to come out here and uh, give a little back, you know, so... Um, and that's what brought me out here in North Carolina. <laughs> I definitely want to talk to you about your history with Cody, with Robert Drysdale, and your thoughts on teaching seminars. But first, I want to ask, how did you get the nickname The Honey Badger? <laughs> um, well, it, it started really early in uh, my career. So initially, I started, I jumped into jiu-jitsu to do MMA, and um, I wanted to go down that path, you know, just like most average guy does, right, when he's young and stuff. Um, and right off the bat, I... I either do some crazy stuff or just go in there, you know, boss of the wall, not thinking about consequences. So, you know, my buddies were like, man, you need to calm down, you little crazy. And then around the same time, there was a Honey Badger video that came out with a voiceover. And my buddies, like, send it to me, and they're like, dude, this is you. Like, you're, you're, you do whatever, you don't care, you don't think about the consequences, and then you keep coming back. Like, at one point, I had tape on my feet, on my hands, braces on my elbows, like, and they're like, man, you're still training. So it was kind of like an ongoing joke at first. And uh, next thing you know, it just kind of stuck. And, uh, and it stuck with me this, you know, ever since. And it kind of just evolved into its own thing. <laughs> so, Were you always a footlock guy from the beginning? And if not, how did that start? Um, I, I was. I, uh, I always had a niche for it. You know, I always uh, kind of always wanted to see, like, e- not the easy way out, but just kind of always wanted to think outside the box. You know, uh, when I first started jujitsu. 
uh, it was just a bunch of buddies of me uh, of mine um, messing around in the gym, you know, like uh, at the base gym and stuff. And we didn't really know there was academies or teams or anything like that. So we just like YouTube a bunch of stuff, and uh, some of the stuff I came across was leg locks. So I was like, "Oh man, that's pretty cool! Like, why don't more people go for it? like you know, people's feet are always up in the air, people are always defending with their feet first, like." So to me, in my head, it made sense, right, to attack that first. Um, the first academy I was with, you know, down the road, they were kind of frowned upon it. They're like, "Oh, that's not really a submission. That's not really jujitsu." Um, and then when I made my transition from that to Robert Drysdale's. Um, he was completely different. He was really open-minded and, you know, a submission is a mission, you know. Uh, so he he, he kind of pushed it to, you know, explore, do whatever. Nothing is your game. Everything is, you know, jiu-jitsu is your game. So that really helped me open up and really see uh, what I wanted to explore in the leg lock game. And um, as I went through the rankings, I... I just saw them more and more, you know, just like some people see more arm bars or see, you know, more chokes or taking the back. It just it was coming to me more. And I always loved them, you know, and I was finishing my opponents pretty quick. So I was like, hey, this is this might work for me. And uh, it just kept growing. So I like to finish my fights as soon as possible. You know, the sooner, the better for me. So um, I just kept working at it. You know, I always said the, the beginning of my career, the beginning of my white and blue belt, like I lost a lot, you know, a lot of trial and error, a lot of frustration, but I think it made me a better person of who I am now, um, on the mats, you know, and really helped me close up my, a lot of my holes, uh, that I had early in the beginning. So it's, it's, uh, it's great. I, you know, I still try to evolve. I still try to close up, you know, all the holes I have and stuff. And, um, but it's it's great. I, I love it. I I wouldn't change anything of it, you know. So how did you wind up training at Drysdale's? Was it something you had researched, or was it a proximity thing? Somebody, yeah. How, how did that come to be? So uh, so before I was with uh, Carson Gracie, uh, Las Vegas, and um, you know I was training back then. You know, seven days a week. Sometimes, most of the time, twice a day. Um, really putting a lot of effort into it, and. Um, not really getting anywhere, you know, losing the first round of every tournament, um, just really frustrated. And I was constantly told, like, I just need to train harder. I train, need to train more, you know. It's, and I need to train harder and harder. And um, I, I was really lucky. One of our brown belts from the Philippines came over. to. He kind of moved over to Vegas, and I became really good friends with him. And he kind of took me under his wing, and uh, he saw how much, you know, time I put into it. And he goes, you know, I want to help you out. And he's like, um, I don't know how you feel about this, but I want to take you over to a friend of mine. And I think that's where you'll grow more and, you're, and you belong. Because you you want to be a competitor. You want to compete a lot. So he's like, I used to train, train with Robert Drysdale when he was a blue belt. So I was like, okay, cool. You know, I really didn't know what to expect. You know, I was just like, what, what's the big difference? I've only been to one school. I didn't know any better. I didn't know anything else. So he he sets it all up. He talks to Rob. He takes me over there. So before I step on the mats, you know, I talk to Rob and kind of tell him my situation. He's like, yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, step on the mats if you like it. You're more than welcome. Try it out. So I step on the mats. I do a session with him. And halfway through the class, I thought I was going to die. I was like, oh, my God, this is worse than a tournament. You know, like my anxiety, like I was just, it was, I was just wrecked, a big, a big mess. And um, by, the end of the, by the end of the session, my gi was soaked from head to toe. I couldn't breathe. I thought I was going to puke like 10 times. And I was like, this is where I need to be. If I want to grow, if I want to get somewhere in jiu-jitsu, 
this is the place. So a week later, I canceled my membership in the other gym and, and moved over. You know, it was no, I never did it for a belt rank. I never did it for, I, I just wanted to better myself. You know, I wanted to see how far I can get, you know, and how good I can be. Um, so I, I, owe, I owe my friend a lot, you know, because he, he opened up a door for me that has given me tons of opportunities and has definitely given me uh, a whole different aspect of jiu-jitsu because I think my journey would have been completely different. And who knows, maybe I wouldn't even be doing jiu-jitsu right now, you know. So it, it, was, it was a great thing. It was, a, it was a great experience, and it was completely day and night, you know, going from one gym where you compete, but it's not – really too serious to where a coach wants to, wants to make his academy world-class champions, you know, whether it be in the cage or on the mats. Um, he wants everybody to be their best. So it was like a huge eye-opener, you know. So, uh, yeah, once I went there, I just never looked back. <laughs> A ton of incredible jiu-jitsu practitioners have come from and come out of that academy, the Drysdale Academy, and one of them is Cody Malte, yeah. who you will be teaching a seminar at his school tonight. So maybe you could tell us how you met Cody and some of your experiences training with him at Drysdale's. Yeah, so uh, Cody was already there when I started training there and stuff. And, um, you know, Cody's not the biggest guy, you know. He doesn't look like he's the strongest. He has a crazy beard. Um, but he was always, you know, really, you know, down-to-earth, quiet little guy and, um when I got there, I mean, everybody was just monsters, you know, like you said. And um, I got to roll with him a couple of times, and I was like, man, this guy's just, like, killing me, you know. Um, but it was one thing that, that I could say for that academy, um, and it's, it's not because I'm there or anything. It's just um, those guys train hard, but they mean well, you know. So Cody would beat me up, but it was never on a personal level. It was never, you know, he never meant – to hurt me or anything like that. So it was like just tough, solid training, you know? And um, we became good friends and stuff, and we were constantly looking for each other to train with each other because as much as he'd go for my neck, I'd go for his feet, you know? And uh, as time evolved, as I got my purple and moved forward, like my leg locks started getting better. So like it was more of a chess match, who's gonna get who first, you know? So it was almost, it was almost to the point where it's like, okay, who's, you know, let's go, let's see what's gonna happen. And, uh, you know, a lot of times it was either a stalemate or, you know, like, I'd catch him first round, he'd catch me second round, it was back and forth a lot. So it was, it was, we always kept each other on our toes, you know. Um, so when he left, it was kind of like a big bummer because he's like, oh, man, one of our good training partners is gone. Um, but on the flip side, you know, he opened up a, a successful academy. It's great. Um, lets me come out here, do seminars, you know, helps me out too. So it, it's just another branch added to the family tree, you know, so it's great. <laughs> It's terrific to have places that you can go and train with and, and, in your case, teach seminars. And so I'm wondering, how do you approach teaching a seminar? Is it the kind of thing where you plan out a particular curriculum or do you take requests from – is it a thing where Cody's like, hey, I really need you to show my guys some footlocks? Or how do you approach that? Well, um, I'm pretty well known in the jiu-jitsu community for my leg locks, you know, especially my straight ankle locks. Um, so for the most part, when I'm doing a seminar, it's it's going to be a, a, a footlock seminar, a leg lock seminar. Um a lot of people don't really see most of my other game or my passing, or um, because I, I just attack like so much. You know, when I when I go do tournaments, it's my A game, then my you know B C D game. Um, when I when I train, you know, so there's days I'll just try to pass. I'll just try to take the back. You know, work on other stuff. Um, but you know, with Cody, you know, he's like, man, you're you're one of the best guys I know for leg locks. So you know, come and show my guys some some leg locks. You know. 
Um, he says he has some guys here that, you know, are really infatuated with leg locks and stuff, and they're really good. So it's, you know, if I can, you know, if it's at least one thing that they can take away from today's seminar that'll help them, you know, great. I'll be happy. You know, it's um, jujitsu is jujitsu. It's, you know, it's no secrets. A lot of the same moves. It's just the small details sometimes, or uh, the setups may be a little bit different that, that might open up somebody's bright mind and be like, oh, man, I never thought about that, and it just opens up a whole new door. So uh, when I do seminars uh, or even privates, you know, it, it's mainly do you want to learn a, a leg attack from top, from bottom, a transition, or I've had guys that say, hey, you know, these, especially in gi, you know, the guy keeps getting my collar, my sleeve, what do I do from there? So, like, I'll, I'll help them with those small adjustments because those are things that I've had issues with and I've – in my own way, figured out how to counter it or still finish my footlock, you know, with a lot of the um, basic defenses for, for leg locks. So for, for the most part, it's it's all leg locks that I do seminars for. What would you say, in your experience competing, teaching, training, what do you think the number one mistake or misconception that people have about leg locks is? Like, is there a common thread of like, oh, you know, I wish m most people should know this but don't know this? Um, I, I think the biggest downfall, which is, is it's starting to go away, which is great, is that leg locks are frowned upon. It's not it's not jujitsu. It's not a real submission. Um, it's no different than an armbar. You know, uh, I think it, it, if you break your arm, they always make an example analogy of, well, if you're in the street and, and you break somebody's foot, they can still do something to you. Well, if you break their arm, you can, they can still do something to you. Same concept. So, I think if you disable your opponent, you know. Um, on the street, it's going to give you a chance to either walk away or, you know, cause more damage to them, right? Uh, for sports jiu-jitsu, a win's a win. A tap's a tap. You know, I, I don't care how I get the tap. I'm, if That's all I need, you know? So I, I think that's the big misconception. Another thing is uh, they just started learning jiu-jitsu. They don't need to learn leg locks. Uh, I don't think it's never too early to learn anything. I think there's a, a, a way to approach it. So... It's a more on the safety uh, aspect of it where you don't want your partners injured, right? Because when you first learn, and even some higher belts um, that don't practice a lot of leg locks don't know how to escape or defend. So it might not necessarily be you applying the leg lock that hurts your opponent. It's themselves escaping the wrong way. So I think um, you kind of have to go kind of backwards when you, when you expose leg locks to your students or uh, to a new jujitsu person, kind of show them the defense uh, at the same time as you're showing them a setup or a leg lock, you know, especially a straight ankle. So many people blow out their knees, twist their knees, you know, um, and, and those can be career enders, you know, or they'll be out for so long they don't want to come back, you know. So I, I think uh, if you show them, hey, we're going to learn a, a straight outside leg lock, ankle lock, with the defense, a proper defense to, to counter it or to escape, now you, you're giving them both. So now when I attack your foot, you know, my opponent can escape safely. Or I attack the foot and I know when to let go if he's not going to, if he's going to turn the wrong way. So now what you're doing is you're exposing them to the, to the leg lock game and you're doing it in a safe manner where they're not going to hopefully not injure themselves. I mean, guys injure themselves with arm bars all the time. You know, they're they're next with guillotines all the time. It's jujitsu is not a a very you know calm, gentle art as it is. You know, and we all know that. So I, I think 
uh, not exposing your students and keeping it away from them till they're, you know, purple, brown, black, I think is you're causing way more damage than than good. What do you think the most important thing that you've learned from Robert Drysdale is, either about jiu-jitsu, about the approach to teaching, about training? What do you, if you could isolate one thing, what do you think that is? One thing from, from learning from Rob is uh, keep your head down, train hard, train every day. You're nobody special. That, that's the most important thing I've learned from him. Um, he trains with us, you know, and when he's on the mats, he's training with us, he's, he's dying with us. Uh, you know, obviously he travels a lot, does seminars, but... He says himself, you know, I'm not special. I train with you guys. I'm not above you guys. And if if somebody is so accomplished like Robert Drysdale can say that, um, then who am I? You know, why can't I, you know, keep my head down, stay humble, and train train hard every day, you know? So that to me is, is, is the biggest thing I can take from him. His work ethic is outstanding. It's terrific. I mean, he's accomplished so much. He has nothing to prove, you know? But yet he's still on the mat sweating with us and, and pushing us because he knows what it takes. So if he can still keep doing it, if he's still on the mats, you know, learning, discovering, asking questions, like, why can't we? You know, so definitely that. <laughs> so you're an accomplished competitor. You've won numerous honors. I'm wondering, do you set competition goals for yourself? And like, or do you not think in those terms? Do you compete just for the joy of it? Or do you set, okay, this is something I really want to accomplish? Um, I definitely set goals for myself, um, especially with... You know, having a family, a three-year-old, uh, you know, a regular job, working graveyards, um, it, I have to set myself goals to keep going. Um, if I just said, oh, I'm just going to just train to train, I feel like I, I would burn out, you know. Um, so w with the tournament, it's definitely um, certain ones that I, I'm determined to win. Um, in my head, I, I've won that tournament a million times in my head before I step on the mats, you know. Uh, and that's another thing I've learned from Rob is, is a big part of it is a mental aspect. Um, example, perfect example of it is uh, Pan Ams. So at every belt rank, I, I've either lost Pan Ams in the first round or um, not made weight, you know. I've missed Pan Ams uh, by weight because of my weight twice. And, it, and it's... You know, at the end of the day, that's my fault, you know, regardless of the scale, regardless of what my scale said or theirs. Um, I should have been better prepared, you know, and it's it's lessons learned in this journey. Um, and then when I compete, I feel good. And I, like I said, I end up not getting past the first round. So this year, you know, it was my first uh, my first try at Brown Belt. And uh, I, I had told myself I'm going to win this thing. Like, uh, that's it. No excuses. No nothing. I'm going to prepare myself. I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to win it, you know? Um, so with that, though, it's uh, a lot of time away from the family, a lot of days of no sleep, you know, because I still got to work at night. Um, but it's it's well worth it at the end, you know? If I reach that goal, it will pay off. It's worth it. Um, for on a personal level, you know, and it almost justifies me being away from the family, you know, putting all that work and then not placing or not winning. It's like, man, why, why did I do this? You know, like I, I lost so much time for my family and it's like I have nothing to show for it. So and I know they don't see it that way, but I do. You know, I, I it's not necessarily pressure, but it's motivation for me. So definitely there's there's certain tournaments I'm like, okay, this one, it's it. You know, I, I got to clear my schedule and do what I got to do to make it happen. 
Um, another one's coming up is World Masters. You know, so I, I won that one at Blue Belt. I placed second and third at, at Purple Belt. So this year, same thing. I, I want to kill that thing. I want to destroy it. I want to go in there and destroy my opponents, you know. So it's, you know, when I go back home, uh, I'll probably have, like, another week of just, like, slow, you know, regular training. And then, you know, start July, it's it's game on. It's training hard, two-a-days as much as I can, strength and conditioning, you know, dialing my diet in, uh, getting ready for the end of August for World's Masters. Is there anything I haven't asked about that you wish I would have asked about or anything about yourself that you want the listeners to know? Um, yeah, I, I uh, recently, back in November, I, I started a program, a jiu-jitsu program at Nellis Air Force Base. Um, so on top of everything I already have on my plate, I added that on my plate. Um, the opportunity kept coming up, you know, and um, I, I really didn't want to teach. I really just wanted to focus on myself and uh, keep training, reach a bunch of goals that I want to reach. Um, but, you know, the opportunity kept knocking on the door, and I was like, okay, well, you know, the man above has something, some other plans for me. Um, I can't keep refusing it. So I talked to Rob. He gave the blessings. He's like, yeah, man, go ahead, do it. So we started it, and now we have a, a successful program on base for all the military families and the soldiers. So that's really great. You know, I, I feel like uh, giving back to that community especially is 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 a lot, is great. Um they just recently ordered uh, $10,000 worth of mat space for us, you know. And we haven't even been there a year. So they, they believe in the program. They see the, the program growing. We have about, between kids and adults, a little over 40 students, you know, give or take. So it's, um, it's definitely growing. It's, you know, it's reaching out there to the community and stuff. Um, and hopefully, you know, over time we, we grow it more and more. One of my goals is to eventually... Um, somehow try to get different bases to come out like tournaments within base within different military bases you know kind of connect them somehow um i know there's a lot of foundations out there already that help and stuff but so i want to incorporate a, a bunch of that like i just want to give back a lot to those guys you know um i was part of military i was part of air force I, I did six years and at the time i was young i didn't really care for it i was you know i got out and stuff but as i get older i realize like oh man these guys do a lot you know they sacrifice a lot um, so giving them a tool, a self-defense, a way out, you know, um, helping them deal with their PTSD or, or any other issues, you know, I, I think jujitsu can do all that for you. Like it's helped me tremendously. I think you can do the same for them, you know? So that's something I'm really, really proud of. And that's something I, I, I put a lot of effort to make it grow to, to hopefully like just blow it out, you know, and make it huge, you know? Well, teaching and competing are rewarding in different ways, but it sounds like you're getting rewards from a lot of that. Yeah. Well, we wish you the best of luck at Masters Worlds and the Pans, and best of luck with your program. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the podcast, and uh, I loved it. Thank you so much. <laughs> My thanks to Moises Antonio Lopez for that interview. I thought he had a great and thoughtful perspective about what it takes to succeed in jiu-jitsu and in life, while the, at the same time making sure that you're giving back. You heard him talk a little bit about how competition focus has to be a little bit single-minded, but... At some point, giving back through teaching or through starting a program is another way uh, that you can contribute to the community. Our featured interview today is with Kristen DeBrucker, someone who does give back to the community in many ways. And you'll get to hear Kristen talk about her own journey from a competitor very early on to now someone that really is focused on teaching, particularly on teaching kids. Kristen is a well-rounded martial artist who is a brown belt in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu under Pedro Sauer, trains out of the Pedro Sauer headquarters in Herndon, Virginia, and also teaches Muay Thai. 
she trains in various martial arts uh, and produces a series of entertaining videos. And I think you're going to enjoy this interview with Kristen DeBrucker. Our featured interview today is brought to you by Cageside Fight Company. Based in Durham, North Carolina, Cageside Fight Company offers the best fight gear for Muay Thai, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, mixed martial arts, and all the other combat sports. With the best prices and the best customer service around, Cageside Fight Company will be able to outfit you for all your martial arts needs. Check them out at 124 Lauder Road in Durham, North Carolina, or online at cageside.com. Thanks to Cageside for supporting this featured interview. Um, my name is Kristen DeBrecker, and I've been training here at uh, Pedro Sowers headquarters for the last 11 years. I've uh, been very fortunate to introduce to the man in uh, 2006. So I've been training Muay Thai, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for 11 years, and Silat, Kali, and JKD for the last eight. So it's been fun. <laughs> so I like to moderately suck at everything. <laughs> I want to talk to you about your journey as a practitioner of all those arts and your career in fighting because you fought MMA. I know that you don't do that anymore, but you have. And then I want to also talk to you about your journey teaching as well as the Throat Punch Thursday videos you do. So why don't we start with training? What inspired you to get started training in the martial arts and where did you start? Which martial art did you start with? Okay, um, so it's a funny story. I was nine years old and I loved Power Rangers like everybody does. And I just really wanted to be Tommy the Green Ranger. So bad. Like, you know, the Tommy the Green Ranger, he used to be the White Ranger. That's what I really really wanted to be. And so I started doing Taekwondo when I was nine years old. And I did that um, up until I was about 19. And I met this random guy who came into our Taekwondo studio, who was a blue belt in jujitsu from this Helsin school. And he's like, oh, have you ever seen this thing called UFC? And I'm like, Shh. I was 16 at the time. And I was like, okay, why are you on the ground? Like, I was very, very confused by it. So uh, I was like, why am I on the ground? I feel very uncomfortable. Can't I just kick the guy in the head? And so that's when I was introduced to um, MMA and like UFC and like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for the first time. And I was about 16 at the time for that. So I kept doing Taekwondo until I went to college. Then, you know, I gained like the freshman 15 or the freshman 50, whatever you want to call it. Um, and uh, I got introduced to fencing. That's when I fenced in college. And then I found this, I kid you not, a Pedro Sauer affiliate school five miles from my university in Hollins University in Roanoke, Virginia. I walk in and I'm the only girl because this was like... This was 2006. So I walk in, I'm like, hey, and everyone just like turns. It's like the Wild West. You're like, Ooh. and I was like, hi guys, I'm here to train. And that's how I got started. And so I've been doing it ever since. I just, the guy just happened to be a black belt under Pedro Sauer. And I finished out the rest of my year, my junior to senior year, doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and Muay Thai. Started both at the same time. That, and then when I moved back up to Northern Virginia, Dennis Hayes, who owned the school at the time, was like, hey, you need to go train with Pedro Sauer. And I'm like, okay, just don't hurt me. And so I just happened, Pedro had just happened to move from Utah to Virginia at the same time that I happened to be moving back up to Northern Virginia. So it just kind of happened to be the right place, right time. And that's when Master Sauer was teaching four nights a week on the mat. And I was a white belt and I was be giving gold every night and I didn't even understand what was going on. I was like, this is amazing, but I don't even know what this position is. So that's kind of how it started, and it just kept going from there. I, I just inspired to do it because I, at the time when I was in my early 20s, I just really wanted to fight. I was like, I want to do MMA. I want to fight in a cage. And at that time, no one did MMA. At least no women did it. You know, that was in the Gina Carano days, like the very infant, or as I call it, the pre-Ronda Rousey days. The infant stages where, like, there was, like, three women, and you had to really, like, check your femininity at the door just to be respected by the guys. Because I remember at the old school in Roanoke that I went to train at, I would go toe-to-toe -to -toe with these guys and just have to prove that I'm tough and take my beatings, like, 
with grace by that i mean go cry in the bathroom for an hour and then hop back on the mat type of thing and that was every night and so but i wanted to fight so i was like okay i hate jujitsu but i know it's good for me for fighting so i'm just gonna keep doing it and it's funny that 11 years later it's like i love it i couldn't i can't even imagine my life without martial arts it's it's in my life every day it's it's just a part of me. It's like part of my identity at this point because it's been 20 years of me just doing martial arts in general. I can't imagine what my life would be like without it. That's a very long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> but it's a great answer. And so 11 years later, you're a brown belt under Pedro Sauer. You're training here at the headquarters. You're teaching, especially teaching the kids, which we'll get into in a second. But let's follow up on the MMA conversation because you mentioned you, know, you were one of the only women at the time. When did you take your first fight, and what do you remember about that first MMA fight? Okay, uh, the first MMA fight or first Thai fight? Cause, uh, let, let's talk about the first fight period, and then if it's the, which sounds like it's a Thai fight, yeah. and then and then tell me about your first Thai fight, and then your first MMA fight. Okay, so uh, first Thai fight, I was uh, about a year and a half into training. I just moved up to Northern Virginia from. Roanoke, and I was training with Aaron Riley. For those guys who remember MMA back before Conor McGregor and all the big stuff, Aaron Riley was like the guy back in the day, fought Robbie Lawler, and I had the pleasure of him cornering me in my first Muay Thai fight ever, which is pretty awesome. And uh, I was, you know, nervous. You know, I'd just gotten out of college, so actually I didn't have health insurance at the time. By the way, don't do that. And I remember stepping into the ring and I'd, I'd lost a ton of weight. I used to be 195 pounds. And so I got down to, for that fight, 160. And I remember stepping into the ring, and I, like, have all my gear on. And I'm like, I'm going to fight another person. She's going to try and hit me. I better hit her first. And that's exactly what went through my mind, <laughs> like, the exact thought process. So I remember the first thing I said was, like, I'm just going to jab her in the face and then kick her in the leg as hard as I can, and we'll just see what happens from there. And that's what I did, and I just kept doing it. <laughs> and so the round was over. I sat in the corner, and I'm like a little shooken up, you know, because the first round is always like that adrenaline dump. And Aaron's like, you're doing everything right. Just keep doing it. And I'm like, okay. And then they throw in the towel, and that was the whole fight. And I was like, that was it? And Aaron's like, I was hoping you are going to get more experience. <laughs> so he was like disappointed that I, that fight didn't last longer because the girl was only 5'3", and I'm 5'8". So it because I... It was just the way it worked out in my favor. And so that was my first fight. I don't even think I got hit the first fight. But it was a different time, though. Like, it was only, like, a handful of guys doing Thai promotion. So it's like, for women back then, you were either going to get a soup can or a future pro fighter. You just never knew what you were going to get. And you'd always have tons of back outs. So if you had that one female opponent and she got hurt, you have a back out. So it was... Like I over it was like a couple of years before my next fight because I had five backouts after that because of just the sheer amount of like just it was a different time like there was just not a lot of women that trained period so you had one fight and then five people backed out on you yeah and then my first MMA fight was uh, much later actually because I I just gotten my I'd gotten my blue belt I got my blue belt I kid you not a month after my first Thai fight so I hadn't even done jujitsu for like a month when I got it. And then when I finally did my first MMA fight, it was like this big deal around it because I was at 145, so I dieted down. I weigh, I walk around about like 160, 158 to 160 now, and at the time about the same. And so I dieted down to about 145, and I remember getting into the cage, and I was like, look up at the other girl, and I'm like, she's a lot bigger than me. And I totally like psych myself out. At the time, I didn't realize it was Kelsey DeSantis. Um, she's the one who went on the date with 
Justin Timberlake and the Marines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the same girl. So I was on CNN for getting beat up. <laughs> I get you that. And uh, so I fought a three-round fight with her. I remember she cut a ton of weight and I cut any. So I was like, I'm really small. And so I got in my head. So I went three rounds. I broke my nose in the second round. And I wore white. Don't do that. Because you just bleed all over yourself. It looks bad in the judge's eyes. And... um Uh, Just suggestion. And I was just fighting. And I remember breaking my nose in the second round and being like, I could totally quit right now, but I'm not going to. And so I lost by decision. That was my first MMA fight I ever had. And I didn't realize that I was being a feeder to someone who was eventually going to go pro. She had one more fight and then went pro after that. And that was my first MMA fight. Because like I said, you either get soup can or yeah or pro future pro fighter and that's the thing now it's so nice now because the women nowadays there's so many competitive women in jiu-jitsu and thai and mma now than there was at least when i was starting out because it was so hard to find matchups so but that was the two experiences so when did you get your first regular woman training partner you mentioned you were the first woman who walked in and that you had to you know train with the guys for a long time do you remember when that was Um, i'm still waiting I don't really have a lot of female training partners, to be completely honest, even at this school. I have a lovely school here, and it's been really great, but I've kind of had to kind of claw my way into the training zone. I'm uh, There's a lot of women that train just jiu-jitsu or just Thai or just other arts, especially like the Filipino martial arts, but very few women do all of them, and very few women like do MMA, so it's really hard. For, I'm not at a fighter gym, so that was part of the tough... So all my training partners before every single one of my fights was all always men. I don't know the last time I've had like a, a female training partner that I can, you know, who's game, who I can just like go with. And so that's why it's so great about all these female open mats they have all the time in training and meeting other women from other gyms. That's partially why I started competing in jiu-jitsu. It was not so much to, to win, but just to experience what it's like to have another game female opponent. And to feel that energy and be like, oh, I'm not the only one out there. There's a lot of there's a lot of monsters on the mat now, you know, and that's that's amazing about it. But I have not had a regular female training partner kind of ever. So my job now is kind of to give back, which is why I started doing seminars is to kind of give back and show women like, hey, if you keep at this, especially now with so many more women on the mat, you know, you can really go somewhere with this. So. So let's talk about your giving back through teaching because you mentioned you taught a seminar at Mark Kukro's school recently. You also teach here, teaching Thai and teaching Jiu-Jitsu, particularly to the kids. What got you interested in teaching and what part of teaching do you enjoy the most? Um, I think the big thing for me teaching is I'm not just interested in making champions or great fighters. I'm interested in making better people through the vehicle of martial arts because martial arts helped me so much. If you can believe it, I used to have debilitating social anxiety, which is kind of hard to believe now as I'm talking into this podcast, my friend, but it, it's, it does amazing things for people. It changes lives. I think jujitsu and, and martial arts in general just changes lives. And so, especially with kids, I can get to them at a very young age and this teaches them things like confidence, self-respect, problem solving, not giving up. Like, I don't want the first time this kid loses in life to be like when they lose their job or lose a bad relationship. The first time they lose is they get tapped by another kid and they're four. It's like, oh, it's okay. Keep going. And just giving that to someone is such an amazing gift. I think that that's the really the big gift. I mean, I think giving back and also for me was also 
being a role model for other women that are coming up, especially young girls, especially with the societal standards that are out today and the, the lack of, I think, good female role models. It's nice to be that for some of these girls and make that kind of impression. So I, I think about that every day that I'm on the mat. I'm like, be the instructor or the coach that you always needed or wanted. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do here. Because I think this... Jiu-jitsu is simple. It's just not easy. And so you just need some people to kind of help you out a little bit along the way to some guidance. And so I love just seeing my students surpass me, get better than me. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to put myself out of the job, you know, where they don't need me anymore, you know. And, and I love teaching the kids here, both, you know, adults and Thai and adults, Thai, jiu-jitsu. Um, just the kids in general, it's all amazing to me because I think, they all have so much value to them individually, but when you put them all together and give that to somebody and they discover it for themselves on their own journey, it's pretty amazing experience. Like the reason I didn't pursue fighting as long as I wanted, I could be champion, but that's just me. It's, you know, fighting's a thankless job. No one thanks you to be selfish because fighting, you have to be selfish. But as a coach, I'm being selfless and I get to see my students succeed. And I love that. So it's not just about me, it's about everyone I touch in their life. So you get to see it spread. And, and that just to me is so much more rewarding, personally. I noticed you tried to set me up with your killer orange belt there. So, but I, <laughs> but I, but I ducked her. <laughs> yeah, she's pretty good. She's all right. She's, um, she's a really, I've, had, I've been very fortunate to have not only great students, but also, like, I've just been lucky with the parents and the, the kids that came into my life. My first two students happened to be just fantastic kids. Um, her brother was actually the first student I ever had. Um, he was four, and he's this tiny little Vietnamese boy, and everyone's like, oh, you can't teach him jiu-jitsu. And I'm like, watch me. Because it's about the way you approach teaching kids. You know what I mean? And, and I think giving up on a kid just because he's small or he's young, just teach his body maybe he mentally doesn't understand it but just teach his body and then they never learn how to do the move wrong they always know how to do it right and so now like they've been training both the kids that you met the orange belly you ducked um <laughs> she's been training now for eight years and she loves training with adults and she loves jujitsu she just got into a very um uh, a preparatory school that has like very uh, tj thomas jefferson for the gifted and talented she applied and she got in and so she's going to do great things with her life beyond just jujitsu jujitsu is just this thing that's kind of helped her get there that she loves and that's what really impresses me i don't care if she ever becomes world champion but she just loves jujitsu and that's really the thing that i really love so we've talked about your competition career we've talked about your teaching the last thing i want to talk about i want to talk about throat punch thursdays <laughs> which are these fun set of sort of half instructional, half comedic videos that you put out. I'm wondering, uh, where did the idea come from to do this? What are you trying to accomplish with it? Well, it actually came from, uh, in my colleague class, my Filipino martial arts class, one guy was teaching and he was like, we, we teach some nastier stuff, you know, in Kali, you know, stabbing, you know, breaking necks. It's not like nice, like and fluffy, like jujitsu. And, uh, one guy was like, we we're teaching a move where you actually do punch them in the throat. And one guy was like, ah, throw punch Thursday. And I'm like, consider that stolen. <laughs> um, so I had the idea because all these other martial arts, like JKD, Kali, Silat, even Taekwondo and some of the stuff that's a little more, uh, I guess, old school used to be so relevant in like the sixties and seventies and they were considered progressive. And now most people think they're out of date now. I don't, I disagree. So I wanted to really kind of approach the instructional martial arts video 
with some humor and kind of fun with some like core cool dorky references because that's what the jujitsu MMA community is. It's just dorks who like to hurt each other. And it's been really well received and it it helps kind of get me out there to a broader audience than just my little tiny community of jujitsu people that know me. And it brings people back to my blog and, and so they, where I talk more about like serious stuff and then, um, and also about like the fact that, Hey, I do seminars and I actually know some things, <laughs> but I love it. So yeah. Yeah. Now you attract people that love roadhouse and various. other. <laughs> yes, that's true. Cause roadhouse is, well, that's, I, there's a funny joke to this and then just, I'm going to throw this out. That actually has a story to it. My, my old MMA coach slash Kali instructor, Brian Mossy, and I'm going to use his name cause he'll appreciate this. Um, when my first Dan and Asanto seminars I ever went to, he's like a guy from Oklahoma. He's like an old school Midwest Thai boxing in like college, old school JKD guy. He's a hard, he's a hard dude. Um, and we were all like drinking after Dan and Asanto seminar. And I was like, he's like a caricature of masculinity. And I'm like, dude, you were like, if Roadhouse was a, like the movie was a person. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to make Roadhouse too. So that's like the joke. So for the longest time, we always called him Roadhouse. So I made Throat Punch. So the Throat Punch Thursday idea partially came from him to make a reference to somehow Patrick Swayze and Roadhouse while doing some badass, like, collie, like, hurting people stuff. So there's actually a story behind it. So they're all inside jokes, but they, I, hopefully they reach a pretty broad audience. Inside jokes are the best jokes, and we'll link to some of the Throat Punch Thursdays in the comments of the podcast if you want to check it out. Is there anything that I haven't asked about that you really wish I would have asked about, or anything about you that you really think people ought to know? Uh, that I used to work in the wine industry before jiu-jitsu. <laughs> Mary Holmes is smiling somewhere right now. <laughs> is that just a random fact? Yes. Because, you know, you know, drunk people, children, they're like the same, you know? <laughs> so, yes, I did that before. <laughs> That's just a random fact. It's not really important. <laughs> but thank you. It's been wonderful. I've had a blast, and we'd love to have you back in North Carolina to teach some seminars and to train with us if you'd be interested. I would love that. Thank you so much. So that's our show for the week. I want to thank my guests, Moises Antonio Lopez and Kristen DeBrucker. I hope you enjoyed both of those interviews. I want to remind you to register for U.S. Grappling Submission Only Raleigh. That's at the end of July. This show uh, is a labor of love for me, and I really appreciate y'all listening. I also want to express my appreciation to the co-hosting duties shared by Lourdes Cantu and Betsy O'Donovan, who asks the etiquette questions. The music on the show is a combination of Tune, The Real Law, and DJ Mini Love. And don't forget to support the Tune and The Real Law Kickstarter for the Beats and Bars Festival if you enjoy the music and you want to see hip-hop culture flourish in the North Carolina scene and beyond. This has been Dirty White Belt Radio. My name is Jeff Shaw, and we will see you all next week. (laughs) 